Hey guys, what is going on? My name is Yen, and welcome back to the Self Storage Income Podcast. Today we have a very special guest for you guys. I am so excited about this episode. We have the legendary Mike Burnham with us today. He's been in the self storage industry for over 42 years. He's the CEO of Storage Mart and has handled over $4 billion in self storage asset transactions. This man is an absolute legend. I'm so excited to have him on today. So, without further ado, Let's go ahead and jump right in. No matter what business or industry you're in, you're going to want a competitive advantage over your competition, right? You're going to want that ability to outperform and outmaneuver and outvalue that competition. Janice International provides you the tools to be able to do that, whether that's their R3 program to help increase the look and feel of your storage facility through new doors or siding or roofing or gating or whatever that is, or a technology solution like their no-key solution that allows people to rent units, to access units, to do all of this without ever going in the office. Be sure to check out Janice International. Link is in the show notes. Welcome everybody to Self Storage Income. And today we have an incredible podcast with Mike Burnham. And I'm gonna introduce him here real quick, but you have probably all heard of Storage Mart. They're obviously legendary in our industry. And uh, this is very exciting. We're very, very grateful that Mike would come on here and actually spend time with us. So with that, we're gonna dive straight into this. Mike, how you doing? Good, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Well, to get started here, for those that don't know about you or Storage Mart, do you want to give kind of a little background and a little intro to how you got into storage and uh, where Storage Mart started from, where you guys have gone? Oh, my goodness. Um, I came back into business in 1976. My father built one of the first storage facilities in the Midwest in 1973. And between 76 and 86, um, just using the old limited partnership uh, type way to raise money. We developed throughout the Southeast US. 86, the tax law changed. We sold all but two stores and we're in central Missouri and we own two stores, one in Mobile and one in Pensacola. So um, at that time we invited my two brothers and a sister to come back into the business. And we expanded from 87 to 94 throughout the Southeast. This was a period of time that the RTC had an enormous amount of, this was the, f- the savings and loan fiasco. It was before the RTC actually, and allowed us to go through and pick up a lot of management deals throughout the Southeast. We bought a management company out of South Carolina. And in 94, we'd accumulated 58 assets, went out and uh, went to a friend of ours that had 20 and talked him into coming in and being our CFO, went public with 78 assets in 1994. Between 94 and 99, we grew the company to 237 stores in 22 states and public storage decided they liked our company better than we did. And as a public company, your life is not your own. Uh, The only reason anybody should consider even thinking about going public is access to capital. And in 1993, 1992, 93 and 94, there was no access to capital. So going public was the first and only option for us. But when you do that, you also give up some things and you give up a lot of autonomy. You give up talking to a board who, because we were, you know, ag econ majors from central Missouri that the market didn't really think we knew what we were doing. So we were forced to go through and and bring on some board members who were some really smart people. One was the uh, chairman of the center of real estate at MIT. Another one sat at the right hand of Sam Zell uh, with the equity portfolio. We had the vice chairman of Wells Fargo. We had my college roommate who at that time was part of Duke Realty, which is now part of Prologis. And uh, altogether, we took the company public. However, in 99, these guys um, decided that when the Russian ruble collapsed, and I didn't realize that self-storage was related to the Russian ruble at all at that time, but we were, and that, it did change the economy. Public storage came into us and did exactly the same thing they're doing to life storage right now. Did a bear hug. We completed that transaction November of 99. And on Friday, Chris and I had uh, 500 employees. 
On Monday, we had six, three of which were related to. So it was very much a, a down transaction, but we took the weekend off and went back to New York. And because we had not gone through and put up a real fight against public storage, that we had a reasonable reputation on Wall Street. And we we're able to go back and we raised $100 million with a company called Warburg Pincus, which at that time is one of the largest private equity funds in the world. Between 99 and 2006, we rebuilt the portfolio and had uh, 58 stores. Well, whenever you do a deal with private equity, you have to realize you're kind of making a deal with the devil because eventually they're going to want their money back. And in 2006, this is before there was even a hint of the GFC that uh, they wanted their money back. So Chris and I spent about six months trying to sell the company again. And we couldn't quite get the number that we thought was um, what we thought it was worth. And we had a local high net worth individual for our little town here in Columbia, Missouri, uh, who's part of the Walton family. Sam and Bud Walton both went to high school and the university here in Columbia, Missouri. And um, this guy happened to marry one of the Waltons. And he has been a fantastic financial partner between 2006 and 2000. 21, uh, we grew the company exponentially. Uh, in 2009, when nobody in North America could borrow a dime, we knew that there was a company in Canada called InStorage that was not really meeting all their numbers. And because we were trying to buy stores there and we knew that the prices they were paying could not be supported as a public company platform. So we started buying their stock. In 2009, we completed a hostile takeover of InStorage, which was the one and only publicly traded company in Canada at that time in the self-storage business. That gave us uh, 67 stores, made us the largest player in Canada at that time. Well, between 2009 and 2021, we just continued growing um, because our partner at that time, uh, not only did he own the Los Angeles Rams, the Denver Nuggets, also owned the UK Arsenal soccer team. So he thought it might be good if we had some self-storage in the UK. Well, we found two brothers that had developed a nice portfolio in the Southeast of England. And we bought that portfolio and since I've added to that portfolio, three stores. So we have 19 stores in the UK. <clears throat> in between time, we just kind of took care of knitting. Uh, we grew in the US. Um, we do 150 to 200 million a year in new acquisitions and using our partner's money. And we, like everybody else in the self-storage industry, were flabbergasted at how incredible the business uh, withstood the pandemic. We had three of the best years in the history of the industry, and we are very fortunate. Uh, we'd had several other large private equity players chasing us. You got to understand, for somebody to come to Columbia, Missouri, you got to take like two buses, a train, and an airplane. Yeah. So it's not easy to get here. And if somebody actually comes to visit us, they really want to come talk to us. And we had been chased by a, a large a sovereign wealth fund that together with them and uh, another um, high net worth individual on the, in the Northwest, together we sold a portion of our company to them. So we have uh, really four partners. We have our original partner, we have two other parties that are high net worth and sovereign wealth fund, and then the Burnham family. And, you know, as you grow, um, we, <laughs> unlike our partners, we don't have unlimited funds. <laughs> and we have to come up with our share of all the acquisitions. And it's been interesting because when our new partners came in in February of 21, we thought we had enough equity to last us several years. I mean, 500 million in equity should last you, you know, 10 years. If you look at 65% leverage, well, it lasted us nine months because we had an opportunity in New York City uh, to purchase Manhattan Mini Storage. And we had known the family that ran Manhattan Mini for 20 years. Gary DeBody was past chairman of the National Self Storage Association when I was on the board. And um, we were, uh, very lucky and fortunate to have some fantastic partners that allowed us to go through and effectively overpay more than anybody else when we bought the stores in Manhattan. Uh, that brought us 17 stores, 
56,000 units. Um, and it has been a real interesting experiment. Um, the first month, we cut 2,000 locks. 2,000 locks. Wow. We have one store that has 4,700 units. <laughs> Buying 17 stores with 56,000 units was equal to what an average store is 600 units, let's say. 100 stores. But it all contained in 17. And it has been... Um, a real um, good experience. Uh, you got to realize that a 10 by 10 in New York City in one of the stores rents for almost $900 a month. We have four by four by fours that you have to crawl up a ladder three stories to rent. It rents for $160 a month. It is just a completely different concept than what we have seen any place in the world. And I've been fortunate enough to travel around the world speaking, visiting various self-storage operations around the world. And this is like none other. It was true trophy assets and un irreplaceable assets. So for the last year, we've been digesting that. And in between time, we've added to our portfolio. We've been like everybody else in the industry. We've tried to be very disciplined on the acquisitions and we're only we've only closed 100 million this year we think maybe we'll be able to move that up to 200 by the end of the year uh debt is challenging i mean thank goodness one thing that getting big gets you is scalability and if we buy one more store in a market like kansas city where we already have 47 stores uh you can understand the economies of scale you can understand what it does for your marketing programs on your being able to go through and have multiple full-time full-time assistant managers that travel between stores um, we've been able to go through and not quite master the remote aspect of it i know it's kind of the buzzword in the industry today and uh, covid has accelerated that process dramatically in the last three years um, and i when i spoke in salt lake city three or four weeks ago in park city Public Storage mentioned that they've got a portfolio of 29 stores on the north side of Orlando that they're going to be experimenting with being totally remote. Uh, Jefferson Shreve, who's a good friend of ours out of Indiana, just sold his all remote portfolio of 100 plus or minus stores to Extra Space for $500 million. Not sure that they couldn't have spent $500 million to figure out the remote rental act concept without uh, buying some of the stores that uh, that Jefferson had. But it is certainly something that's on the tip of everybody's tongue. What we're trying to do, trying to increase our, um, uh, I guess, our IT aspect of it. And then most recently, I'm probably, I can talk forever about this, guys, but. Uh, no, Mike, keep going. This is amazing. <laughs> this is amazing. Uh, and most recently, I don't know if you all been reading all of the uh, information about chat GPT, uh, yes. about AI. Yes. And um, I mean, we've been using it for about two months as a way to go through and check some of our blogs and some of our content writers. But you got to realize how this could very well be, I mean, a, a disruptor for Google. I mean, we spend millions of dollars every year with Google. And if there's a way to go through and disrupt that, I'm all for it. But you're, you're, you know, again, the devil is in the details. And whether we're trading for a devil we know to a devil we don't know, but all of a sudden, you know, our seven-person uh, marketing team has to figure out how to optimize ChatGPT. And um, it's just um, kind of surprising that this business, which is just, you know, renting boxes, renting space, has had to become so technological, um, more so than probably any of the other real estate sectors out there. Oh, I mean, we are close to being able to determine when somebody walks in the store, depending on what kind of phone they have. And on that phone, we can determine what their zip code is. And based on that, we may be able to go through and eventually be able to tell a different price based upon that information come walking in the door. Our revenue management systems, are becoming um, more business intelligence systems. And we have three people in our business intelligence department. Um, still not quite sure what they do, but eventually I think it's gonna come out and help us from what everybody tells us. Uh, 
Um, but this world is changing and it's no more stick a stick a manager, you know, in a, a 10 by 20 office, put a box snowman out front and put a gate and start renting units. It is not like that at all anymore. It is so dramatically different, especially when you start looking at, um, I'll never have a remote store in New York City. Um, but I certainly could see one in Boise. Yeah. Uh, can certainly see one in Coeur d'Alene. Yep. I could uh, see them in Columbia, Missouri, where we are. Matter of fact, we're, we're, we're experimenting with one right now. And we know it's going to happen. Uh, we just want to make sure it's right. Because um, uh, since COVID, we've seen, if you don't, everybody listening, if you don't go through and track the Google search demand, which is very easy to do, going into the Google um, main website, there is a way for you to go through and search a Google search demand for your product. And we have seen a steady decline, a downward sloping line to the right in the last nine months. And um, you have to look at that. We see our search demand going down. We're seeing our move-ins and move-outs normalize, meaning they're almost equal to where they were in Q3 of 2019, before any instance of COVID began. Um, we're seeing all of that come back to what we are normal. Now, during COVID between 2020 and 2022, I mean, we saw some unbelievable same store numbers, extra space in Q1 of 21, 22, excuse me, put 27% same store NOI. That is absolutely, I'm in awe of them. I'm in awe of, I mean, all the public companies were putting you know, in, enormous same store double digit growth on the board. And then things started slowing down. Interest rates started moving up. Um, Q1 of last year was fantastic. The rest of the year, it was slowly, again, kind of like a big air mattress and has a pinhole in it. It's just kind of slowly, the air is coming out of the mattress to the point that during the three years of COVID, I mean, same store NOI was the standard. What we're getting back to is what this, this industry has experienced for the last 30 years, which is three to 5% same store NOI growth. And that is what, if you go back and look at the last 30 years truly, until the last three years, that's what we looked at. And as I tell the analysts that call me trying to figure out self-storage, first of all, I told them we should have gotten into it 10 years ago, not last month. And uh -huh. let them know that three to 5% is still pretty darn good and will beat almost any other type of real estate day in and day out. So the long and the short is that guys, we're in a fantastic business. It's one of those curious businesses where my competitors are my best friends. Yes. Um, and there's not many other businesses out there like that. And we're truly blessed to be in this business. And um, I'm happy to share all those experiences, good, bad, and otherwise, believe me. You know, Mike, uh, you resonated on so many things here. It just, first of all, this, uh, your perspective is almost unmatched. I mean, you are one of the originals and what you've gone through and what you've seen is very unique compared to other people. Like a lot of people may have been in the self-storage industry for a long time, but they didn't touch other aspects like Wall Street, private equity, right? They haven't had a lot of those different experiences. And you've kind of seen both sides of the coin. Um, and you've seen the entrance of those worlds like Wall Street and private equity into our industry. And you've seen the change that has come. We've talked about, like you talked about the technology change, which that's a major thing for us. You, uh, you know, we came from an industry that like you mentioned before, a cutthroat, which all other industries are, I feel like compared to storage, just like you, like I have, I, you know, Mike, you were at our conference and you spoke to everybody, right? Just giving information freely. We do it at the conference and you'll just sit down and tell anybody, you know, kind of anything where no other industry is like that. Like we want everybody to be successful. We've learned that the more you give, the more you get. 100%. And I've, uh, during COVID I had, several conference calls with 30 large operators from around the world. And we would just have the first call, everybody was, oh my gosh, what's gonna happen? Uh, we can, people aren't gonna pay their rent and people like to go through and charge late fees so they didn't put people on auto pay. Well, by the end of the, I had three or four of those meetings from different people and everybody was on auto pay and everybody said, oh my gosh, 
how can we do this again? <laughs> yes. And, uh, we'll never see the, I don't, I hope, first of all, I hope we never have an ever pandemic, but I can't imagine what would ever create the opportunity that we've had for the last three years. Stores renting up in 12 months, uh, normally it's three to five years. It's just crazy. And it's finally, it's slowing back down. And we're taking this year to kind of regroup, uh, work really hard on our internal mechanisms. All uh, We're changing our sp- uh, property management software. Um, we're hosting our own website, which costs about a million dollars a year. So there's, yes, getting big is okay. But you know something? Um, being small is okay too. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. You can make a lot of money in this business. All right, everybody, if you're going to be going out and buying and purchasing and investing in a self-storage facility yourself or even with partners, you're going to need some money, right? You're going to need some financing. You're going to need funding. Look no further. Go to Live Oak Bank. These guys know self-storage. They're a phenomenal group of people. They do incredible work in the self-storage industry. We've had a plethora of listeners go to Live Oak Bank, get their financing, get educated on self-storage. They're a amazing solution for you guys, all your financing needs and all things self-storage. Again, Live Oak Bank, be sure, check them out. When you guys are looking at property management software for your storage facilities, there's a ton of options out there, but no other option compares to Tenant Inc. Tenant Inc. is going to be your one-stop shop solution that has an amazing amount of tools that you can deploy at your fingertips to maximize the value of your facility, to operate it more efficiently, more effectively. They have an open API where you can back in almost anything you want. You own your data, and it's just an incredible solution. I can't say enough good things about these guys. Link is in the show notes. Be sure to check out Tenant Inc. A hundred percent. And, you know, the changes that you've touched on that you saw, it, it, it shocks me even how rapidly they they occurred. You know, we got into this much later than you did at the, uh, you know, early 2000s. So we're talking 18 years, 20. And it was like, we felt like we came in on it right as the industry was changing, right? It was like right at that precept. And that was why we kind of went into the industry because our industry prior to that was consolidated and was rapidly changed, which was a uh, uh, large, insurance brokerage firm consulting for um, pri- or, or uh, self-managed health funds. Um, and uh, technology completely changed our industry, created mass consolidation, but it also created massive separators. So what happened was all of a sudden we had firms, even like ours, use technology to grow really big in a way they couldn't have before. And uh, that was kind of what we saw in self-storage. But that what we saw kind of took off and helped and but it took off just like we thought it would but really the last five years is something that i think like you said i don't think anybody saw this explosion in tech in self-storage come and i agreed self-storage at this point it's it is it's like it's almost like a tech play the only the only um asset class that i can think more so in real estate would be maybe hotels and their way, but we're very similar because of the customer acquisition process. And how do you think that that's going to change the landscape? You've mentioned automation, right? But how do you think it's going to change the competitive landscape of the industry? Well, I, first of all, I want everybody to understand that you just got into this business in 2019. It ain't always like this. Yes. <laughs> as far as the technology, I mean, we talked about remote aspect of it. We've talked about... Um, COVID forced us into remote rentals. Um, I mean, the chat GPT uh, is something that, I mean, as it morphs and as it improves, that is going to, I think, can fit in nicely into the self-storage. You have to kind of, you know, get outside the dots when you start thinking about, okay, you're going to ask chat GPT, I want to move uh, from a, from my apartment to another apartment, I need you to go through and tell me which mover to use, which storage facility to use, what it's going to cost, and they'll write an entire narrative for you and set up a schedule. Um, how do you optimize that? How do you make sure that your store comes in first? Uh, if you're not if you're not able to go through and use organic growth with this, how do you go through and get, make sure that that uh, GPT mentions you? I mean, all these things we're just starting to think about. I mean, I, I got out of the marketing when Yellow Pages went away, and and, and I knew that it, I knew I know enough to know what I don't know, and I didn't understand that, and uh, I think it kind of changed our universe, changed the self storage industry. 
you can still be successful. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you can still be very successful if you put up a well-located piece, uh, well-located piece of real estate. Don't overbuild it. Take care of it yourself and take care of your customers. You can have some. You can build a web page for free. There's so many new opportunities when you attend some of the SSA shows about all the new prospects and gadgets and way to go through and set these things up that we never had before. Um, I mean, <laughs> I can remember doing, uh, you know, ledger cards. I can have to, we used to fax our reports into the home office to go through and do all of our uh, accounting on a Burroughs computer that was half the size of my office. So, I mean, we've, we think we're on the leading edge, but I, when you start thinking about what Storable has done, for example, when they came in several years ago, um, we have a group we put together called the Self Storage Institutes, where we've got 30 of the largest private operators in the world that get together once a year. They came in with um, people that had just left Bain Capital, which was Mitch, Mick, um, Mitch Romney's old company, yeah, and had financed Storable at the beginning. And they said, we're going to invest $100 million in the storage business. We all thought they were crazy. Well, I think Storable now has a market cap of over a billion dollars, and they've not only got not from spare foot, they got into insurance. Uh, they've gotten into uh, not only just customer storage insurance, but also from providing uh, property casualty insurance. Uh, they've got a merchant processing firm. They've become the first one to vertically integrate this entire industry, which before this came in, the vendor population was kind of representative of what the owner population was. It was mom and pops. Yes. It was Dave Reddick that started Sentinel. It was some of the people, I mean, Glenn Hunter that had Domico. I mean, the people, they were mom and pop businesses that just took this over. All yep. of a sudden, I think Storable has kind of created this opportunity and this, oh, um, a public personality that the self-storage industry has never really had before. And that was the beginning of the technology revolution when they came in. And we researched, um, we had a proprietary software product. And then most recently we spent about a year researching which one we wanted to go with. Uh, we did choose Storable. Um, they did do our new website. Um, the jury's still out. We're a year into it. We're probably a year before we finish it. Uh, it is going to be an absolute freaking nightmare going through and changing because we've got, you know, 750 staff members and we have to go through and train all of them on a brand new software product. Um, so with technology comes issues, but with hopefully with those issues as they get solved, make you more efficient. And because we're in a, a fixed cost business, anything we can do to go through and save a penny goes right to the bottom line. And then you look at the, the technology behind revenue management. We spent almost 10 years going to every real estate conference we could go to with an open checkbook saying, sell us a revenue management problem. Yeah. Nobody could do it. Yeah. And we found, I don't know why this company even today is in doing it because they're fishing in a very shallow pond. They came from the cruise industry, but they also started the seat management program for American Airlines. And we were able to latch onto them and it's kind of started the revenue management. There's now two people really that are ProRise and Veritech are the two people that I would trust in this industry to go through and use a true revenue management because most of the PMS that people use have a semblance of it, but not to the point where you need to do it. And don't get me wrong, if you have three stores, you could do it on a yellow legal pad. Yeah. Um, that's exactly what I tell people. We use we use both of those too. But I tell people, I'm like, when we first started out and we only had a handful of stores, we would do it, do the same type of thing, maybe not as good on Excel. Sure, you can do it. Yes. I just got to go through and put your mind to it. And until you get your mind broadened by attending some of the conferences or listening to the podcast, you understand this business is changing. And if you don't change with it, um, you're going to be forced out because, for instance, we came into um, Des Moines, Iowa. We have 23 stores in Des Moines, population of a million people. When we came in, the rents were $6. They're at $11.50 now in five years. 
And we do that through the revenue management programs and through the technology that we've been able to go through. And if everybody wants to follow us, fine. If they don't follow us, that's their problem. And uh, we've learned a lot of things during COVID about the elasticity of pricing uh, for our customers. Um, yes. I can share with you all, Just we just completed a, a study uh, for Q4 of last year that on um, beginning of October, uh, we took a group of 1,500 customers, broke them out 750 each, matched them up demographically from around across the country. And we gave 750 a 20% rent increase and 750 a 0% rent increase. At the end of December, we finalized our numbers. And at the end of three months, those that got a 0% increase, there were 77% of those people remaining. Those that got a 20% increase, 73% of those people were remaining. And the number of dollars you take that times the 300,000 customers that we have, that's real money. And we've not seen a ceiling yet. I'm very anxious to see how Extra Space pursues their current pricing strategy of knocking down asking rents and then four months later putting through some very large rent increases and yeah. doing it multiple times per year. Yeah. Uh, their, their answer was, we'll do it until we see some sort of an occupancy you know, adjustment. And I suspect that our COVID has taught us that our customers are more sticky than they ever have been before. We think that most of the COVID occupancy has been burned off at this point in time. Got to realize that other than both coasts have only been out of COVID for 90 or 120 days, every, everybody else in between has been business as normal for the most part. Yeah. And so we've been able to go through and experience all that. So it's very interesting to see what's going to happen. And that slow, that air mattress has got that slow leak in it, starting to get a little bigger leak in some markets. Now this, I've seen public storage really move hard too, to the cell, uh, to the extra space model of uh, being aggressive on in-place rent, rents and market rates being aggressive to the downside, in-place rents being aggressive to the upside. Um, I, and this is, I, I obviously don't know, this is an outsider perspective and I'd love to get your thoughts. Um, public storage seems to have changed a lot in the last few years from what I've remembered and what I've seen on their management side, um, acquisition side, overall corporate um, kind of outlay. I, I, what are your thoughts on public storage? Whereas to me, it seems like it's a different company than 10 years ago. This is just my opinion and it's worth what you're paying for. <laughs> um, that when Ron Havner was the CEO of public storage, it was a different company. When combination of Mr. Hughes passing away, uh, any Hughes family member getting off the board, uh, Ron retiring, or becoming chairman and Joe Russell coming on. Um, I, I, I think I've seen a change in that aspect of it. Uh, Ron was a, um, an incredible CEO and probably one of the best I've ever met with. I would meet with him at least once a year and take copious notes. And he allowed me to do that. Um, when he when they took us over, he said, "Mike, just just wait. This may be the best thing that ever happened to you." And he was right. Um, that's changed. Then they had an activist investor come in, and they said, "Guys, you know, in the past, Mr. Hughes would say, because I'm the largest shareholder, I can do better work by keeping my dividends in house and using them to buy more property than I can by paying increased dividends. So I'm only going to increase dividends when I absolutely have to, to meet all pre-requirements. Um, I, I think some of that had to change with the activist investor coming in. This is just my opinion. I have no idea that this is true or not, but I think when the activist investor came in, they immediately bought Todd Manganero easy storage. Um, I don't think they bid on the Manhattan mini portfolio because Ron has always been pretty open. He doesn't really like the New York city market. Um, but then he's also in the last, what is it? Two years ago, they bought what $5 billion worth of property. And before that they had been 
just kind of, you know, four or 500 million. And when you've got a $40 billion company buying 500 million in stores every year, won't even move the needle. Yeah. 5 billion hardly moves the needle. Yeah. Um, there has been a change. They, um, I think they were by peer pressure, <laughs> for lack of a better term, they were forced into the third party management business. Mm-hmm. Um, that That's literally what Ron said to me. So really? yeah, yeah, he said he he it was almost too like his way of saying he didn't like it, and he thought we have to do this right, but we're gonna do it our way and we're gonna kind of you know stick it to it. He he was very passionate about that. No question, he always has been, and I mean I I, I consider him a friend, but he's also a mentor. Um, he's told us that all along, and he also told me that the best way. To run a self-storage business, it's a dictatorship. It is not a democracy. Mm-hmm. And every single decision comes out of Glendale, which we've kind of adopted the same philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, everything is dictated from top down. And when that top changes, you know, maybe there's going to be a way, there's going to be some time. There's going to be some changes before things take place. And perhaps that's what's going on with public storage right now. But listen, um, with what they did in the last week, um, yeah. they've got their finger on the pulse of everything because it could not have been a more perfect, perfectly timed opportunity because you've got all the big private equity groups are having net redemptions. Um, you've got um, most of the REITs trading at or below their NAV, so they really can't go out and uh, raise any money from selling stock in the public companies. EXR is really about the only one that's probably capable of doing it. And I suspect there's some midnight oil being burned in Salt Lake. Um, but I don't think any of the usual suspects, the Blackstones, the KKRs, uh, the big people like that are going to be chomping at the bit to do something with life. I think Joe Sapphire has done a fantastic job uh, with life storage. And uh, if he started looking at the overlap of life and public storage stores, I'm going to say they probably have a 75 or plus or minus percent overlap of being direct competitors, which when they took us over of the 237 stores we own, there was only 14 we did not directly compete with public storage on. And when you look at what they did in 2002 with SureGuard, almost exactly the same thing. So uh, public is still the company I, I, I respect. And I fear <laughs> at the same time yeah. um, and learn from them every step of the way. Now, Mike, I got a few questions here We I want to ask you that I think is very relevant to a lot of people getting started in this industry. And that's particularly around small to mid-sized uh, properties and markets. And do you think remote management will bring the not only the large players like we've seen you know this everyone's buzzing about the extra space acquisition but do you think that that is going to pour down into small markets i know that there has been and i've gotten feedback from a few people who business models are specifically very small markets and they as i was told they didn't believe that there would be really uh, large sways on cap rates that values would hold incredibly low because the largest players would be moving into these really small markets through the Midwest and elsewhere. And I've struggled. I've struggled with this. I've had an internal struggle with this. I don't. I. I don't think we're there yet. I don't even know that we might get there. I would love to hear your opinion, and I think so with the listeners on small properties, small markets. Well, first of all, this is still a real estate business, and the three most important things in real estate are location, location, location. If you can smell McDonald's and see Walmart from your store, it's always going to be successful. You can have the worst possible manager in the world and have that location and be very successful. The best and worst thing about the self-storage industry is we can make money at 65% occupancy. Yeah. Um, For years, we were in the the tertiary markets and even below. I'm not sure what's below tertiary. uh, Those type markets. And we were done. We were done on cap rates, on refis done on financing because we're in small markets. Um, and then all of a sudden, the public companies uh, started running out of real estate in the top 50 MSAs. And they started migrating down to Indianapolis and Cincinnati and Kansas City. And before you know it, they're into Knoxville. 
then they're into Birmingham, and then they're into, you know, uh, Lexington, Kentucky with 300,000 people, uh, Springfield, Missouri with 350,000 people. And next thing you know, we're in Columbia, Missouri, where we have five stores and we're getting almost, I hate to tell you what the square foot of somebody will build here, high rents per square foot in small college towns. And yes, you're still going to get done on financing, but where we see the appetite for the public companies increasing over the next few years, they're going to have to move into the secondary and tertiary markets. And you know something? Our secondary and tertiary markets have outperformed our top MSAs. 100%. Um, mainly because the ineptitude is not the right term. It is just that the lack of sophistication of most operators in the small markets do not allow them to go through and utilize the opportunities that they're out there today with value pricing, revenue management, uh, customer storage sales, insurance sales, all those type things that are is shockingly unknown in some of these smaller markets. So I want to make I want to hit on something. You know what we just described is my entire business model. Uh, fast grow, growing second third tier markets over the last twenty years. We would enter into them. We would buy um, facilities in those markets. We would have multiple ones there. We'd oper, uh, optimize management rates, everything else like that. But I think we also need. I want to be clear here. When we say second and third tier markets. Um, a lot of people are confused on this. So if you're in rural Midwest, right, your idea of a second tier market may be very different. As I was talking to a Wall Street banker and I said, well, I live in a second tier market, uh, Boise, Idaho. And they were like, well, that's a fourth tier market, right? And I'm like, well, maybe, I guess in your mind, in my mind, it's a second tier market, right? And I'm like, I wonder what the town that I grew up in is. Like, that's gotta be like a ninth tier market or something. So um, I think when we look at, Underneath third, fourth tier markets, uh, when we're talking really 50,000 be population below, down into 20,000, right? When we get into this range, which I know there's been a huge amount of capital going into these rural cities that have 5,000 people less, right? And it may not even reach to the 10,000 plus. Um, what are your thoughts on these types of locations? Not second tier, not third tier. Well, most of Jefferson's properties were in markets like that. 10,000 10, population smaller. He was very successful. My biggest problem in going into 10 and 15,000 person markets is my biggest competitor is the yard barn you pick up at Lowe's. Yes. And anybody can put up a 10 by 10 in their backyard for, you know, three or 400 bucks. And they're not going to go through and um, you know, spend the type of money it's going to cost. The problem is that it costs as much to build in a fifth-tier market as it does to build in a first-tier market. If you're building drive-up storage, it costs exactly the same. The dirt is the only difference in cost. And you're never going to be able to charge as high a rents or be able to. I don't think you can escalate rents as quickly in the smaller markets as what you can in some of the bigger ones. Well, I, I take that back. Um, I've got a, a friend of ours and built in a town of 4,000 people. And we kind of showed him on how he could use a yellow legal pad, put up 150 units, and he's getting 15 bucks a foot because he keeps Whoa. pushing rents. And he keeps pushing rents. And all of a sudden, he started at you know 10,000 feet. Now he's at 15,000 feet. And he's got another plan to go 20,000 feet. And that's why, and especially in markets like Boise, that we threw away the square foot per capita, completely yeah. threw it away. Yep. Uh, we ran a test, compared Boise to New York City, okay? If you look at the square foot per capita in Boise, it is a factor of like 30 times greater than what it is in New York City. It's astronomical. But if you use the units per capita, you're actually a smaller market or a bigger yeah smaller market than new york a bigger market than new york city because everybody has big units right exactly i mean the average size unit of Boise is what pushing 200 square yep. feet almost oh yeah yeah like 10 by 20s is what everybody wants it's 48 48 square foot a unit in new york city yeah so you, you got to change the way you look at things and i think that the problem in a small market all you got to do is you know you know don't grow corn this year and go through and put up storage or kick the cows out of the pasture and build up another one 
And that's the biggest issue is there's no barriers in small markets. That's yeah. the biggest problem. Hundred percent. We that's exactly what we've seen. Like in Pendleton, somebody else built, and it was like there's no growth. So where we were getting consistent increases in rates and high occupancy and everything, all it took was thirty thousand square feet to end that. I live in a little town of uh, five thousand people. There's three new storage facilities under construction right now. Yeah. It's crazy, Sweet. and we're you know my office is fifteen miles away. And we're getting fifteen dollars a square foot, and they're starting at six. Jeez. <laughs> Speaking to development, Mike, how are you? How are you guys looking at acquisitions versus developments? Well, first of all, now is the time to start a development program. And the reason I'm saying that is that if you go out right now and you have your team out looking for dirt, they're going to find a piece of dirt. And if it's in the right market, it'll take you a year or more to go through and get entitlements and then take you another six to nine months to get all the prints and permits and everything else and take you nine months to go through and get it built. So anything you're starting with right now is not going to come out, not going to be ready for rental to 2025. And because of that lead time, now is the time to do it. Uh, We are staffing up on our development side because right now, even with the increase in interest rates, cap rates have not necessarily fallen as much as what most what buyers would like to see. And right now we can build quickly, cheaper than we can buy. And so development is very much on the, the forefront for us. I, just some numbers, and I, th- this is, um, I met with a group in Atlanta three weeks ago. And I probably had 10 different developers that had a total of about 80 stores under construction in the greater Atlanta market in the Southeast. And they're telling me the single story construction is costing 80 bucks, uh, multi-story construction costing 110 to 120. And that's been consistent uh, during COVID anyway. Mm-hmm. And we know prices went up, but they're never gonna go back down to where they were. They might go down a little bit, but they'll never go back to where they were in 18 and 19. So that tells me that we're not going to have a lot of new supply. Yep. Interest rates are still high. We're not going to see distressed deals in the storage industry. Uh, we have the lowest delinquency rate on mortgages of any real estate class ever, like less than 2% on a national basis. Um, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting going forward. We do CO deals. Yes. Uh, Canada does not really have a merchant building program up there at all, nor does the UK. Um, We've got a few select people we work with that will go through. I mean, even if we don't work with them, they come to us and say, what do you think about this site? Do you want to buy it at CO? Okay, we'll design it for you. You build it, and here's the price we'll pay. And yes, we're still doing that. Now, at the beginning of COVID in 2019, that was like a six kappa pro forma. Uh, that, that ship has sailed. <laughs> uh, right now, I'm looking more at an eight, eight and a half, nine percent proforma, capital proforma, uh, to go through and get some deals done. And it's, it, now that part is moving up. And if construction costs are continue going up, I think that the spread between the cost and the sale price are going to continue shrinking um, until we see some of the changes. Yeah, that's uh, very close to ours. You know, uh, Connor here came on over the last few years to build out our development department. And one of the things that we started looking at during uh, COVID and everything was the rate of, it seems like, new builds and things like that significantly started to slow. I think that had a lot to do with um, interest rates lately, um, where it's like, holy cow, you know, a lot of these projects that were all over, all of a sudden we're seeing them just be pulled off the market. They're not going through with them anymore. And we look at this and we're like, you know, I think that we've got at least, I mean, we got almost a million square feet we'll be putting out of the ground in the next year to, and we look at it as actually perfect timing because it, I feel like you, that time frame you mentioned, we have a three year runway to where it takes interest rates to get back down to normal and to start the cycle back up, which then takes three years to put it out. So it's like, we may have a three year run by putting them out while interest rates are high. I know that's a little counterintuitive, even though it might be slower out of the get-go, but we think it gives us a strong... The only thing I disagree with you on, AJ, is that interest rates aren't high. Uh, Well, I'd call them denormalized. Yeah. Um, Because five years ago, we were paying 5 and 6%, guys. Yeah. We're just back to normal. Yeah. All our deals prior were 5, 6%. 
Yeah, we're, so. we're literally back down to where we started and where we'd done all our deals outside a very short window. Mm-hmm. In the 80s and 90s, we did deals at 20% interest and we still made them work. Okay, we're we're millennials, Mike. You're gonna give me heart heart problems here when you say things like that. <laughs> they it still worked. They still worked. We appreciate your time being on here. Yep. Where can people go to find you? Sure, absolutely. Just give my uh, email address, AJ. Just let everybody know what they are. I think it was on the invite. Just Perfect. reach out. Anybody has any questions, so we're gonna happy to uh, give you my opinion. And sounds uh, great. If you choose to pay me, I do like nice wine. Okay. (laughs) Sounds like a plan. We can do that. Thank you, Mike. We appreciate your time so much, and we will talk to you soon. Say hello to your dad for me. Will do. Have a good one. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to this very special episode with Mike. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you guys did, make sure to leave us a review here on the podcast. We would greatly appreciate it. It helps us out a ton. Speaking of which, let's go ahead and actually read some of your reviews and comments that you've left for us here. All right, we've got a review from Disappointed User. No, no, that's actually his username. Like, Disappointed User is his username. Can, can you imagine, like, leaving an Amazon review and it's just Disappointed User, like, every time? Five stars, Disappointed User. <laughs> anyway, he says, five stars, great one to listen to on the way to work. AJ always has high-quality guests with lots of informative content, hoping to make some self-storage moves soon with help from this podcast and AJ's book. And truly, that is our goal here on Self Storage Income, to provide you with the information and the resources that you need to further yourself and your portfolio and your investing strategies to help you achieve wealth and income through self-storage. ChodeMonkey3000 says, Top-tier information. AJ, Connor, and their guests continue to bring amazing insights into self-storage and have a catalog of episodes that answer every question imaginable. Make sure you're listening to these guys if you're interested in self-storage. Thanks for all of your awesome reviews and comments. If you're a current or new listener here on the podcast, I just wanted to say it's great to have you here. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks, everyone.